Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today we are in the beautiful passage of John 13. And I want to focus on a phrase that we find in verse 1 at the end of that verse. Now he showed them the full extent of his love. Today we want to learn the full extent of Jesus' love for you and me. And I want to caution you that they, that might mean you and I discovering that we actually don't know all of his love for you and me. It may mean learning that there's kind of a contradiction and, and a gap that's in us in terms of discovering our own unworthiness. It may mean that we're discovering a little bit of our own pride that is keeping us from discovering more of his love. And it may mean you and I learning that part of growing in his love is reproducing that love and sacrificially loving others the way he loves us. So you ready? Yeah, let's do this. John 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So this verse, verse 1, is not only an introductory verse for the next couple of paragraphs in chapter 13, but it's an introductory verse for the next five chapters through chapter 17. And it's letting us know that In all of these chapters, you and I are going to be discovering the full extent of his love. There's a word I want to draw your attention to because the translation, the full extent of his love, is actually not there in the Greek. The word that is there is the word telos. And many of you might know that telos means the end. It's the the study of the end. So, He showed them his love to the utter end, to the bitter end, to the full extent. And that's why we get this wonderful paraphrase, to the full extent, because it's literally into the end. It's a great question. What would your love be like if it was to the utter end? Well, Jesus is about to show them through a parable of the foot washing, but tomorrow is crucifixion day. And the parable is pointing to what's going to happen tomorrow on the crucifixion day. Jesus loving us to the utter end. Here in verse one, it also gives us the context of his love. And that's key. Love always has a context. Let me come back to that. Uh, He says, having loved his own who were in the world. That's the bigger context, but the, the smaller context is it was just before the Passover feast. So Jesus has taken the disciples at least three times over the three years of his ministry down to the Passover feast. And this is either the third or the fourth one, depending on when his ministry started for him to be with his disciples. So the context is the Passover. What is the Passover? Paschal lamb, sacrificial lamb, the lamb without blemish that sheds his blood for the rest of the nation. And Jesus 
is about to become the sacrificial lamb for the nation of Israel and for the whole world. That's the context. Love always has a context. In our culture today, we have this very surfacey veneer concept of love. We say things like, love you, dude. We knuckle bump or, hey, see you later. Love you, love you, love you. And I'm not discounting any of that, but hopefully it's pointing to a context where we would truly step in front of a train to rescue someone that we actually love, that that love that we say love you means something more than mere words. And here in the context here, we are seeing the bite of Jesus' love. He's going to die for us. And he's about to do something else. He's about to wash the feet of Judas Iscariot. That tells you a deeper sense of Jesus' love for all of the disciples, not just the good performers, but all of the disciples. And he's about to return, the text says, to the Father. So now that you know the context of of Jesus about to experience pain, Jesus humbling himself and washing the feet of, of the betrayer, and Jesus feeling the pain of leaving the disciples and going back to the Father, now you're beginning to sense the full extent of his love. So there's always a context to love. And now we come to the acted parable. Verse 2. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and now was returning to God. He knew all of this. He knew who he was. And he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand, referring to the cross. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Meaning, all right, I'm all in. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, referring to Judas, who is going to betray him. And that was why he said, not every one of you is clean. So it says here that the devil had already prompted Judas, but he hadn't gone ahead and committed the ultimate betrayal yet. So Jesus is going to wash Judas' feet along with Peter's. And it says here that Peter, that Jesus knew his position, that all things were under his power, that he had come from God and he was returning back to the Father. That's letting us know he knew who he was. He was God. He was uh, a person who had been given all authority. 
He was master. He was king. He was the one that those disciples should have been washing his feet. And then he takes on this great act of servanthood, which is undeniably overwhelming. He gets up, takes off his outer robe, wraps a towel around him, his waist. So he's going to go disciple by disciple with a basin and this towel, washing and drying their feet. This ultimate act of servanthood. Now, we today, we think, oh, this is so cool. I love this. This is so quaint. In fact, there's denominations that practice feet washing before communion, and we always wash our feet before anyone else could wash it. But it's a sign of great love, and it has this wonderful, warm feeling. But we don't get the magnitude of what's happening here. This is God washing creatures' feet. So this isn't just Mozart serving a bunch of wannabe musicians and playing a song for them. This is God serving sinners, including a betrayer. So in that great contradiction of God serving sinners, he comes to Peter. And Peter has this overwhelming feeling that is very similar to what he had back in Luke chapter 5 when at the start of his ministry, Jesus uh, sends Peter out in the boat to thank him for letting him use the boat and Peter catches all of this fish and he comes to the shore and he says to Jesus, go away, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Peter at the beginning sensed the contradiction and here he senses the contradiction again. And he says, are you going to wash my feet? So the rest of the disciples, either they were just compliant or they didn't get it. This is a huge contradiction. God loving Peter. Let me say that more personal. God loving you. Do you feel the contradiction? Or do you and I think, hey, if I were God, I would have loved me too. I'm joyful. I'm cuddly. I'm amazing. Everybody likes me. Peter gets the contradiction. And so he can't help it. He just blurts it out. Usually we as recipients of love have a sense that we're deserving. We say things like, hey, Thought you were going to call me. Why didn't you call me? You know, that's the way our friendship is. Uh, hey, are you going to fill, fulfill your duty? Are you going to do this for me? Because that's the way love works. But this is very, very different. That Jesus is loving us and we don't deserve it. And so Peter uses the language here that is shocking. He doesn't say, um, no, I don't want you to wash my feet. In the Greek, it's real clear. It's no, not. No, never. It's not going to happen. I can't let you, Jesus. You, the Son of God, wash the lowest part of me. In some cultures, some of you might have been to Thailand or other cultures where you can't let the bottom of your feet face towards uh the person that you're with. It's an insult because it's the worst part of you. It's the lowest part of you. And Peter won't have it. He senses the contradiction. But Jesus insists. 
And this becomes huge if you and I are to understand the love of God. The only way for us to grow deeper in the love of God is to understand who we are not. Get it? Great God, lowly me. Listen to a similar verse that teaches the same thing. Romans 5.20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase the contradiction. What you are and I are expected to do to get God's approval. And the more we're around the law, the more we realize, I can't do it. And then the verse ends with, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. The end result is we discover more of God's undeserved love for you and me. Here's another verse in Luke 7, 47. It says, and this is my paraphrase, the one who is forgiven much loves much. So let's push pause here. How much are you forgiven? Do you understand God's love for you? I was once, um, as a young believer, sharing my testimony in front of a youth group up in Santa Barbara, and uh, my wife and I had played some songs for the group, and, uh, and then I shared my testimony. And afterwards, I had a young man come up to me and say, man, I wish I had a testimony like yours uh, because I was just raised in the church and I've always been such a good and great person that I, I really don't understand God's love. And I didn't say what came to my mind, uh, but what came to my mind is you little church brat, don't you understand that religious pride is, is perhaps the worst sin of all. But we're often ignorant. We're, we're blinded to our undeservingness of, of the love of God. So Jesus is bringing this out. And the cross spotlights God's love because the next day Jesus goes for the, to the cross to pay for your sins and for my sins. And there we see this huge grand canyon where we discover God's love for you and me. There's a wonderful uh, inventor scientist that many people forget about. He was living about the time of the uh, pilgrims landing here in America, but he was in France and his name was Pascal. And if you know that name, Pascal had this wonderful conversion. Yeah, he'd been kind of a religious man, and he tried to sample around with the only thing that was around him at the day, which is Catholicism. And, and one night, he has this incredible encounter with God. And out of that, he's a changed man. The greatest thinker of that time in Europe becomes a convert to Jesus. And he, this two-hour encounter with God called fire, and, and he so valued the words that came to him that night that he wrote them all down and he sewed them into his coat so that he would never forget what happened. And whenever he changed coats, uh, you know, it was time to get rid of this coat and buy a new one, he would unsew that piece of paper and 
sew it into the lining of the next coat. But let me read to you just a few of the words that, that he said that, that he wrote down through this vision that night. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Notice the grandeur. And then he says, not God of the philosophers, not God of the scholars. He's sensing the contradiction. But he, then he tells us what he was feeling in this vision. Certitude, certitude, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God. Thy God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and everything. He's talking about, he's found something greater and he's letting go of his career and he's letting go of the things that are important to him. And then he senses his own greatness of his soul in Jesus Christ. And he begins to cry and he says, joy, 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 tears of joy. And then he repents and he says, I have fallen away. I have run from you. I've denied you. I've crucified you. But now may I not fall away forever. May I keep hold of you, but only in the ways that are true to the gospel. May I renounce my former life for what is now total and sweet and give total submission to Jesus Christ, who is now my master, my director, and live in this eternal joy that I exercise on earth every day and not forget who you are. Pascal, this great thinker, felt the contradiction. Do you feel it? That God would love you? Let's move on. The next thing we see here in verses 9 through 11 is that uh, Christ's love demands total surrender of your pride and my pride. Let me go back with you to verses 9 through 11. Then Peter says, then not just my feet, but all of me. And Jesus says, no, I only need to do your feet because you're already clean. I love this response because that is the response when we discover the great love of Christ through the cross, when we discover this grand canyon, this great contradiction that you should not be loved, but you are by the greatest lover in the universe, then we then surrender. So here's the question. Why would we give just a little bit of us to him? Why would we say, okay, uh, come into this part of my life? Or, yeah, I'm going to follow you on Sunday. Or I'm going to follow you during my devotions. But once I get to work, once I get uh, into the voting booth, once I get uh, in front of TV, once I get into that sporting event, I'm just me. Why wouldn't we make his lordship something that, like Pascal follows me into all of life. And so Peter has this wonderful, wonderful surrender. There's a man uh, in more recent history, uh, maybe a hundred years more recent than Pascal, that many of you, you know this person through his song. His name is John Newton, and the song is Amazing Grace. You know the song, 
how sweet the sound that saved, here's the word, a wretch like me. I was lost and now I'm found. The context of that song comes from the man who was a slave trader. He was a man of the ocean, the sea, was caught in this storm, was put in charge of, of steering the ship for 11 hours through this storm, and he had some kind of God encounter. You know, one of those foxhole encounters where, God, if you get me through this, uh, I'll follow you the rest of my life. Something like that, only it didn't happen overnight, much like we don't often have these conversions overnight. It was over a period of time, but he finally realized that being involved in shipping and slave trade was absolutely wrong. And he left it and he went in to seminary to study and become a minister. And it's years later, as he's trying to share the gospel in a sermon, that he writes this song for his congregation. And he calls himself a wretch, that God loved a wretch like me. Amazing grace is almost ironic because we should never have to say that we deserve the love of God. But the word grace means undeserved love. God's love is always undeserved. Even after we say yes to Jesus, it's not deserved because whatever good things he's doing in my life is still him. I'm dependent on him. I'm dependent on his Holy Spirit to do these good things in my life or through me. So it's all grace. And he never forgot that God saved this wretch like him. So Newton had, just like Peter, had this total surrender. I think we have incremental surrenders, but then we get caught back up in the daily things of life. And we just kind of make God's love this other thing that we just believe in or recognize, but we're not surrendered to. My wife had a dream years ago, and some of you have heard about this dream. It actually applies to the day that we live in. Uh, in the dream, she came to a place where all these Christians were standing around these booths, and they were arguing. And guess what they're arguing about? They're arguing about when Jesus will come again and how he'll come. They were arguing about politics. They were arguing about the right Bible to use. They were arguing about the right church to go to. And she just looked at all these Christians doing this debate and not discovering the love of God. So she asked one of the people, what's up the hill here? And they said, well, there's a fountain up there with a lion, a sculpted lion in the center of the fountain. And the, the folklore is that when the lion begins to dance, uh, God's spirit will begin to move again. And so Jan thought in her dream, I'm going to go up there and not be a part of this bantering that Christians are all caught up in. And so she goes up there and she sits there by the fountain for just a bit, looking at this sculpted lion that was standing up. 
and water was coming out the mouth of the lion. And she but just in her dream begins to surrender to God. And as she's surrendering, the lion comes to life and begins to dance and asks Jan to come into the fountain and dance with him. And before you know it, the fountain gets bigger and bigger and starts overflowing and running down the hill, touching all the different people. It's that kind of surrender. It's not that hard. But it's recognizing we need his love. So finally, we come to the final stage of this story in verse 12, where it tells us that this grace that we're discovering wants to be reproduced in you and through you for others. So it says in verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord, and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do you understand? He's asking not only the disciples there, he's asking you today, do you understand? My friends, this is the mark of a Christian. A Christian is someone who serves other people. A Christian is not simply someone who's right doctrinally. A Christian is not someone who's right politically. A Christian is not simply who someone's right in their marriage or right at work. It doesn't take a great person to be right, but it takes a godlike person to be so confident in who we are and how we are loved by God to now serve someone else. Think of the gridlock in Washington. Why is everything so gridlocked? Because no one will serve anybody else. By serving meaning listen to them. By serving meaning, oh, tell me about this and tell me about that. Is there any way that we can work together? It's just not happening. But it's no different than your marriage or my marriage where we draw the line and say, I'm right, you're wrong. We find ourselves in marriage counseling, trying to prove how wrong the other person is, and, and maybe even to the point where we're fighting over who gets the property and who gets the kids. It's not godlike. It's animalistic-like. It's territorial-like, but it's not godlike. And Jesus calls us into this servanthood that is so contrary to my pride. Yeah, it's my pride. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. My Christian friends, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Whoa, that is so hard. 
Can we just be equal? Consider someone better than me? Each of you should not only look up for your own interests, but also look for, out for the interests of the others. Your attitude should be the same of, here it is, Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, remember Christ knew who he was and where he'd come from, did not e consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Do you catch the stair steps down, all the way down to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross? So therefore, God has highly exalted him. It's the God way. It's the humbling ourselves and serving one another. So Jesus ends his ministry, remember, in Matthew 25 by saying, to the disciples um, that I'm asking you to go feed the hungry, to give water, and when you when you visit strangers and people who are sick and people who are in prison, and Jesus says that we'll say to him, when did we do this for you? And Jesus says, inasmuch as you do that to other people, it's like you're doing it to God himself. What if we thought this way? What if we did this way? So here's the conclusion. It's possible to know the love of Jesus just a little bit, but it's also possible to know his love a lot. And how does that happen? It happens through discovering the contradiction. Are you going to love me? I'm a wretch. I'm someone who doesn't deserve your love. It then means me surrendering my pride. And then the full circle is I am asked to love others who also I have not treated well and also have not deserved my love. But he's asking me to love others the way he has loved me. Let me close with this illustration from the life of St. Patrick. I think it paints the picture that we all need to understand. So this is the fifth century. And Rome, most of you don't realize that Rome not only ruled the Mediterranean, uh, but the Roman Empire went in half of Europe all the way up through Britain and into Ireland. And so in the fifth century, this is four AD, there's this 16-year-old boy named Patrick, and he's a Brit, but some Irish slave traders, yep, slave trading hasn't always just been Africa. Some Irish slave traders come ashore, and they kidnap Patrick, and they take him back to Ireland, and he becomes the slave of an Irish chieftain and he's given the job of being his shepherd. So he spends years tending sheep, and he begins to have a relationship with God. Do you feel the contradiction? He's in poverty, he's a slave, and he spends the nights and days alone watching sheep. And it's in that context, that contradiction, that God begins to reveal his love to Patrick. 
So Patrick has this opportunity six years later to escape and, and, and to make his way to the shore. And he has, he has to hike forever. I think it was 200 miles to get to the shore where this ship was. And he gets this opportunity to escape on this ship and to go home. And for two years, he's starting to be haunted by his calling to the Irish. And so one night, this man in the dream, his name is Victorious, and he shows up in a vision to uh, Patrick, and he says, the voice of the Irish, and it comes across in the sound of a multitude that are all saying to Patrick to come. And so Patrick enrolls in the ministry to be trained And he finally becomes a priest, finally becomes a bishop. And guess where he heads off? He heads off for Ireland. And he becomes the first known missionary to Ireland. Now, that is not folklore. That is, in fact, history. And the Irish are completely wide open for the gospel. And they begin to discover the love of God. And all these monasteries begin to pop up all over pagan Ireland. And out of that, the Irish become the missionaries to the rest of Europe. And even the heart of Germany discovers the gospel through the Irish. Did you know? Well, it was through someone discovering the love of God. And that's what I want for you and me, my friends. It's what's going to change you. It's going to change your marriage. It's going to change your family. It's going to change your world. And it's exactly what the world needs. It's what Washington needs. It's what the world needs is a St. Patrick, a Pascal, a person like you, a Peter who's had his feet washed by Jesus, who has seen the cross and knows the love of God to save a wretch like me, like John Newton, and then go love someone else. I want to close by giving you a blessing and praying a prayer about God's love that the Apostle Paul prayed for us 2,000 years ago from Ephesians. And now may you, my friends, have the power, the ability to grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.